The infamous collapse of that Florida condominium tower made millions nervous about their own buildings, and the case is not really over. Since the June 2021 tragedy, a team from the National Construction Safety Team at the National Institute of Standards and Technology has been on the case. It preserved critical parts of the building in a secure warehouse. With more on the team's work, the Director of Disaster and Failure Studies, Tanya Brown-Jamanko. Ms. Jamanko, good to have you on. Good morning. First of all, tell us more about the Disaster and Failure Studies project. This is something that I don't think people are aware totally that NIST has. The program really was started to give kind of oversight, direction, supervision, coordination of all of the disaster work that NIST does. We gained a statutory authority following the collapse of the World Trade Center in 2001. Congress gave us an authority to do federal investigations of building disasters with the hopes of understanding how we could possibly change codes and standards to prevent those kind of tragedies. So the program was born out of that need and gives us an opportunity to investigate these kinds of failures and make a difference. And in the case of the World Trade Center, for that matter, and the Florida condominium, you're really dealing with rubble, it sounds like. There's not a building that's sort of still half standing that you can look at closely. You're dealing with very small clues, sounds like. That's true. And there are a lot of them. With this condo collapse, we've got over 600 pieces of physical evidence. So that's pieces of concrete, columns, beams, things like that. We also have hundreds of documents, design plans, drawings, building permit kind of things. It's a big puzzle to put together with all of the remaining pieces. And what specifically are you trying to determine with this investigation? We are very specifically focused on getting a technical understanding of what initiated the collapse and the sequence of the collapse. We are not focused on finding faults, but we are looking at the building response itself. And again, our goal is always to try to come up with changes to codes and standards. That's why we're so laser focused on the technical causes. And so you really have to look at two elements here. One, was there a original sin in the design and construction that might have contributed to it? But also in the 30 or 40 years, however long it stood there, things happened to it that might have weakened it. So almost like a dual path that you need to look at. That's exactly right. We have a project that's solely focused on the history of the building. So that's how it was designed and what has happened to it in the last 40 years. And we have to have that understanding to see how it may have changed or how it may have been constructed originally. But then there's also the question of why did it stand for 40 years and then suddenly collapse? Was there a particular triggering mechanism or was it it just ran out of capacity? We do not know the answers to that yet, but those are the paths that we're chasing. The implication then is if you can discover these things, it might help existing buildings take a look at themselves in a different light and say, gee, we need to do this so that doesn't happen. Sure. There's a lot of questions right now in kind of the Miami-Dade area about this idea of inspections. Prior to this collapse, they were focused on doing a 40-year inspection and, and kind of recertification of buildings. So this building was actually going through that process. Its 40-year anniversary was up, and it had recently had an engineer to look. But there's been a lot of questions about whether 40 years is the right number. Should these things be inspected 
more frequently so that if there is a problem, it, it can be caught sooner. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to impact existing buildings that are getting older and aging on the coast. But there's also, of course, the opportunity to influence how new buildings are constructed in these kinds of ways and environments. And I imagine what it is that whatever interval buildings are inspected, what it is that inspectors look at. There might be more things that they have been overlooking or just didn't think that could cause a collapse. Yeah, absolutely. We're hoping to be able to use our investigation to point out all of those kinds of things, making changes to the codes and standards themselves. But this space that you're describing also gets into the practices, and we're focused on that as well. If there are certain things they need to be looking for or checking or measuring at these recertification inspections, that's part of what we would want to bring to light as well. We're speaking with Tanya Brown-Gimanko, Director of Disaster and Failure Studies at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. What is the status right now of the investigation? It's been not even a year and a half since, and where do you stand in all of this? We're coming up on 14 months now, I guess, of the investigation, and we're still really in data collection mode. All of our activities up to this point have really been focused on non-destructive testing. So that's getting information from the existing pieces without harming them. So getting measurements, getting layouts, all of those kinds of things. And we are ramping up rapidly to begin destructive testing. So this is going to be actually breaking pieces of concrete off, doing material property tests, those kinds of things. So we're gearing up for that. It should be starting very soon. And do you have, say, the knowledge of given a piece of material, a chunk of material, where in the original building that piece actually existed? The team has done a lot of work to try to figure that out. In many instances, we can tell. And in many instances, we have to kind of put the pieces together, put the puzzle together. We coordinated really well with the incident command during the search and rescue phases. And so there was communication on the ground with the structural specialists who were marking some of those pieces of debris for us to be able to identify where they came from. We also have a lot of aerial and drone footage that we can go back and see, okay, this one that's marked number 12 came from this spot over here. There was a lot of GPS technology employed so that as things were removed, the location of them can be logged. So we do have a lot of information, a lot of data that tells us this specimen came from this spot and this floor, but there are some you know, that we have to kind of piece together ourselves. Sure. So the sooner you can get to the site of a disaster, the better, sounds like. Absolutely. Obviously, the need in a disaster is first to respond to the humans that may be trapped or killed. But from our perspective, we want to be able to get there while the evidence is still fresh. We do not want to interfere with the search and rescue operations, but it is critical for us to get the data and get the information before too much can be cleaned up. So in this case, we had a super rapid response. The event happened in the overnight hours on a Thursday, and we had boots on the ground on Friday evening. So we, we were able to turn around in less than 48 hours and start making those connections with the incident command, which proved absolutely vital to us being able to collect the hundreds of pieces of evidence we needed. It strikes me that in many ways your operation is similar to that of the National Transportation Safety Board. It is. And actually, our investigation authorities, the National Construction Safety Team, It's modeled after NTSB, and of course, their role being to investigate traffic transportation failures, ours being basically the same kind of thing for buildings. Now, we have a little bit different authorities in our act, but we were modeled off of them. 
And what sort of skills and people do you need? What's your own background in this whole endeavor? Um, My background is in meteorology and wind engineering. So I traditionally have looked at tornado, hurricane, even some fire and other kinds of events, hailstorms. I'm a natural hazard kind of person. My role really in this investigation is kind of the behind the scenes coordinating force. I make sure the team has what they need and can move them onto the ground quickly and get them the support they need now that we're well into the investigation. On the team itself, we have a huge makeup. We've got obviously a lot of structural engineers. We've got material scientists. We've got social scientists. We've got geotechnical engineers. We've got a huge variety of people that specialize in data curation and, and data science, analysis, statistics, a huge makeup, GIS experts, robotics experts, and those that work with drones. So it's a pretty interesting makeup of people that really work together well to move this investigation forward. I was going to say one of the elements that might have contributed here was the earth and the sand and the ground underneath the building could have changed and shifted or it was near the ocean and could have been marshy, this type of thing. So that figures in also. Yes. And that's why we have teams kind of focused across such a wide breadth We do have a geotechnical investigation or a project team that focuses on exactly what you're describing, what was happening with the soil and foundation interaction at the time of construction and through the life of the building. And then we have people who are looking at, you know, the weather events that have occurred over the past 40 years. So there's really a huge number of possibilities that we're investigating. We call these failure hypotheses. There's dozens of them, and we have to go through meticulously and either prove or disprove that they were possible. So it's a lot of work, and it takes a a really wide breadth of expertise to accurately evaluate all of them. And no deadline, it sounds like. Do people spend full time on this one, or is this one of several projects going on simultaneously? There are a lot of different projects that are going on around here at NIST. For the most part, our full-time staff are generally on this project 50 to 100% of their time. It it varies by person. Um, Some people split their time between other projects as well. Uh, And then we have a wide variety of outside experts and contractors that may work part-time or or full-time. It just depends on kind of the needs of the individual projects. So wide variety for us. And just a final question in Manhattan, New York, there have been in recent years construction of these incredibly tall residential buildings. I think each floor is millions and millions of dollars to buy. And they're really, really skinny. And many of them take use of the most modern engineering and calculations and techniques. Do you ever worry about those? I mean, they're not like the Empire State Building, which was built to last a thousand years. Do you worry about some of those Central Park, tall, skinny, expensive, weird buildings? Um, I don't know. So I'm, so I'm not a structural engineer. So I, you know, I don't, I don't get too much into that. But I mean, one of the things that I generally think about in this space, is there a building code in the area? If so, that automatically makes you feel a little better compared to places that have no code. Is it well enforced? Do they have good inspectors? Do they have education for their inspectors? In the case of tall buildings, you're almost always going to do a wind tunnel test to kind of look at the forces that the building may experience. So that gives you a bit more confidence in the ability of the structure to stand. So there's a lot of factors that could go into that. I don't know New York's building code off the top of my head, but I, I would be willing to bet that they have one, which is already a step in the right direction. Tanya brown Jumanko is Director of Disaster and Failure Studies at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. 
but I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current uh, current times. I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so. I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.